You want to look at every serious problem in our society today, and I mean virtually every single one. Maybe I'm overstating this by saying all of them, but whether it's what fills our jails, what creates psychiatric illness, what creates homelessness, poverty, interpersonal chaos, you find childhood abuse at the core of all of these things. And we live in a world where trauma is transmitted generationally from one to the next. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep with just some random dude. You've probably never heard of him before. I think his name is Dr. Drew Pinsky. Yes, Dr. Drew is gracing us all with his presence. I had the honor of being on his podcast about a month ago. Truly a surreal experience. And yet again, another surreal experience when I had the pleasure of interviewing him yesterday. I know he's a super busy dude, so just very honored and grateful that he took some time to chat with me. Now, he is somebody that has contributed so much good to this world over the past several decades, but most importantly, and I realize that I say that a lot, but most importantly, but most importantly, I just want to emphasize that he's just a really solid human. He's super kind. He's very authentic. What you see on TV or hear on his podcast, that is who he is. He's compassionate. He's hardworking. And he's super, super smart. And today, I think you'll get to see, you know, a different side of him. I tried to focus more on him as a person rather than him as a, a doctor or television personality. And as you heard in the intro, the disease of family dysfunction and childhood trauma is something that he is very passionate about. So, Excited for you guys to hear my conversation with him. But first, I just want to say that this is the 20th episode of Adult Child. You guys, how the hell did we get here? How the hell have you been listening to my voice for 20 episodes? And all the things that I say on a rather frequent basis, including rather, I mentioned But most importantly, I've noticed quite a few things that I say on a regular basis. I seem to like to start sentences off with really long like ands or so's. I seem to say but rather quite often all these weird annoying things that I say on a regular basis. You're probably counting how many times I say them in each episode. Just know that I am too. Oh, and the other one is I I seem to start off sentences by saying, yes, yes. (laughs) How have you guys listened to me for this long? But seriously, I was reflecting on a conversation that I had with my therapist right before I launched the first episode. And I remember talking to her about what was I hoping to get out of this experience, like keeping my expectations in check. And it was number one, that I just wanted to do it. As I've shared in the years leading up to the launch of this podcast, I had started many creative ventures only to shit the bed before they got to the finish line. So that was kind of number one was just to actually do it, to take something over the finish line. And then the other thing was just to help one person. And I know that this podcast has helped 
a lot more than one person. I'm I'm really blown away at the response that this podcast has received. And I just want to thank you all because I wouldn't still be doing this if it wasn't for y'all. You know, when I first started this, I was thinking maybe eight episodes, maybe 10. That seemed like a stretch, but I got to eight, I got to 10, and I just kept on going. And I'm going to keep on going. And that's because of you all. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this podcast with other people. Thank you for your messages. I want you to know that every time I receive a message from any of you guys, it's a spiritual experience for me. I've received many that have made me cry. And I'm just blown away um, at this whole experience and just feel so grateful. And I'm just going to keep being my authentic, goofy-ass self each week. I'm still very much on this healing journey. I'm not healed. I just hope that you can relate. I hope that you can take gems away from each episode and each interview. And I hope that I can inspire you to to laugh at yourself some. You know, some of you may have seen the the post I made on Instagram today. It was a quote from The Language of Letting Go. And it said, as I journey through recovery more and more, I learned that accepting myself and my idiosyncrasies, laughing at myself for my ways, gets me a lot further than picking on myself and trying to make myself perfect. Maybe that's really what it's all about. Absolute loving, joyous, nurturing self-acceptance. And I try to exude that through this podcast. Um, We're not unique and we need to learn to embrace and laugh at our crazy ass selves and embrace that shit. Because as I've shared... It is through our pain, it is through the shit that we cringe at that really makes us who we are and is our biggest blessing and can allow us to be of service to the world around us. So just show yourself a little self-compassion, learn to laugh at the crazy ass shit that we do. And while you do that, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And now for Dr. Drew. Doctor, my eyes have seen the gifts And it's for fears without crying Now I want to understand Well, it is my pleasure to introduce a man that needs no introduction. Dr. Drew, welcome to Adult Child. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having yes. me. Yeah, thank you so much. I just... It truly was a spiritual experience. When I woke up and saw the episode on my podcast app on the Apple thing, it, I mean, it's, it's insane. (laughs) When was your first moment like that where you're like, how is this really happening? Uh, wow. So long ago, (laughs) I I remember going to a Christmas party for the radio station after I'd been there about a year. And I thought, wow, what am I doing with all these creative, talented people? What am I doing? doing here that was sort of it for me that was mind you that was 1986 i was not born yet oh that's good that's good i feel good about that that in (laughs) no it's awesome (laughs) did you ever deal with imposter syndrome oh yeah 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 that but that imposter syndrome is a sort of requisite of expertise right Mm -hmm. so the way the way expertise works is or the way knowledge works is you go from and this is all of us you go from 
digging into a topic, you immediately feel that you're an expert and you understand it, you know everything. That is called Dunning-Kruger. That is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, and when you begin to realize that that breaks through that cognitive dissonance, that in fact, you know nothing, you fall off a cliff and feel like you know nothing. And then you actually start accumulating bona fide wisdom on the topic. And then as you head towards expertise, that's when you feel like an imposter. When you, when you really know there's so much to know, you can't know it all. You feel like, oh, I, I can't, I'm not good enough for this. I can't possibly understand it. I'm an imposter. Is that Freddy Krueger's mother? Who's Dunny? Dunning Kruger. Dunning Kruger is, is two psychologists that coined this term about cognitive dissonance in early knowledge formation. And it, it's what allows somebody to get up at American Idol and sing like shit and think they sang well. That's Dunning Kruger. You think you know more than you do about the topic. And you're usually way off, way off. And Dunning Kruger, because of the internet, rules the land right now. Because oh, very shit. few people go further and really fall off the cliff and find real expertise. Do you remember that pants on the ground guy that came on American Idol and sang the song of pants on the ground, pants on the ground? <laughs> that was different. That guy was good. <laughs> so, he was the shit. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into you, you know, when I left you from the interview, you were going on vacation with your lovely wife to celebrate your 30 years of marriage. What the hell is your trick? Um, I, I, you know, people ask me that and I, and I say usually in her presence, uh, make sure you pick the right person. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's sort of a glib answer. The, the other part of it is it's, it's kind of like recovery. It's like, if you're good, it's like one day at a time, you worry about today, not 10 years from now. And so today you're good. Today you're processing. Today you want to be with this person. Today you're excited to be around them. If you put enough of those todays together, just like recovery, it 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 goes on. It goes on. Mm-hmm. It sustains. It's really inspirational. And I'm sure too, be, being busy, right? I mean, I feel like that helps a lot when you're not just with each other constantly. No, it, it does. And and because I was a I, you know a severe workaholic for at least a decade and a half, maybe two. And that, that is, you know, she was very independent and liked being alone and stuff. And so that was good. It was still too much because I was too crazy with my work. And now we're spending like all of our time together. And now we're like, um, she works with me now. So I'm not alone doing this thing. Now she's, she's with me on it, which has been a very interesting transition and good. I think. Has she talked to Angela from 90 day fiance recently? We did talk to her um, about, I think it was about um, three weeks ago. <laughs> Why? Why? No, I'm just curious. I just oh, think no. that that's I told you they were buddies. I she, yeah. she hasn't talked to she hasn't talked to her as a as a buddy recently. She had her on our streaming show and we just interviewed her. So and she seemed to be doing very, very well. Angela Dean. Yeah, I got my friend a a cameo from her for her uh for her six years of sobriety. So oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> so funny. So I want to talk to Drew Pinsky, not Dr. Drew. Okay. Okay. So obviously I can't say this for you, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think that in a way that you are a recovering adult child, would you disagree? Um, maybe, uh, I definitely had abuse and I always suspected that my mom was a dry drunk. Um, but no actual using in my family, but you grew up in a dysfunctional family. And that's what I was hoping that you could, could share about. So it, 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 it wasn't, um, 
the system worked. It was the individuals that were sort of a problem. Um, my dad was a great guy, but he was quite narcissistic and had no ability to see that. Not not malignant narcissism, but just sort of, he too was through trauma in childhood. He was very traumatized. His parents escaped the, the Ukrainian genocide, you know, had to be sponsored and all this getting into the United States was really a challenge back in those days. And uh, ultimately, you know, set up a, like a restaurant in Chicago and then lost everything and literally don't know where he was going to eat the next day. And um, and then the dad became a grocer and they sort of lived in a ghetto in Chicago. And um, because of that, 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 that trauma, he had to transmit to me. Mm. So that was transmitted repeatedly um, with no awareness of, of what, you know, the impact that was because of his narcissism. It wasn't, again, it wasn't severe narcissism, it was just sort of a narcissistic bent. So what did that uh, look like? Look like, you know, somebody who sort of almost like codependency, I'd say like he was very caretaking and he was an excellent doctor and super smart, <clears throat> but not the most empathically attuned. Right. <laughs> and so the, the financial abuse was from the age early in childhood and it was usually surrounded clothing. At least that's where the center of the, 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 the intensity was focused. Like, you know, I grew out of a pair of shoes and if that happened, I would immediately be met with stories about how he had to have holes in his shoes, but he walked through the snow in Chicago and that I can get shoes. You need them, get them. Okay. No, 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 no. You get shoes. But tomorrow you'll have to come visit me in the poor house. Because I'll be in the poorhouse. You'll never see me again in person, but you can wave to me through the window. So if you get shoes, I'll be in the poorhouse. So go ahead. Go ahead. Enjoy yourself. Wave to me tomorrow from the poorhouse. And constantly this stuff. Constantly, constantly. And it was, you know, four years old, you're internalizing this stuff. And, and obviously there was a huge amount of anxiety that was transmitted with that as well. And then my mom was, uh, had a whole other set of pathologies. And, uh, just think um, uh, Joan Crawford, and that's pretty much that's your that's your style of of, uh, <laughs> of childbearing. And um, she, I found out when I was like fifty, had a whole separate life that we never knew about before any of us uh, knew her. Uh, she was, and if you get a sense of her stuff, she was the. She used to be in Philadelphia. She was a musician. She always fashioned herself a classical musician. Where did she grow up in Philly? Because I grew up in Philly. Uh, Strawberry Hill. Okay, I've heard of it. Is that area? Is that, is that, is that I think that's downtown. Uh-huh. Near? It wasn't then. It was near the river, I think. Okay. Well, there's, there's, there's Cherry Hill and Strawberry Hill. I, I can't keep them all yeah. straight. Cherry Hill um, in Jersey. Yeah. I'd seen it once when I was growing up. But her dad was an abusive a-hole and whatever. Um and uh, so she ran away from home, essentially. She was the fifth wife of a gentleman my age who was a silent, very big silent film star. And he hauled her out here and she had like a, little, a film career and a television career, probably, I guess because of him. I, we don't know what really happened there because by the time... I found out she was in her 80s and I was like, oh, she wants to take this to her grave. Let's let's let her have it. How did you find out? Uh, a friend of mine was a, a neighbor, the guy I wrote the paper with um, that ended up being the book, The Mirror Effect. 
uh-huh. um, he would we, he would come to Loveline with me because we were we were studying all the celebrities. We'd given them we're giving the personality inventories, and he was sort of the guy there supervising everything. And he um, said, you know, like your mom was in film noir. I'm such a fan. We started looking it up online, and he goes, oh, here's your mom. It was a whole website dedicated to her. You know, the fifth wife of the, this guy, <laughs> silent film star. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Didn't know anything about that. Had a uh, she had a stepson who she cared for for ten years, wow. and then just one day left and never had any contact again. And it was like Don Draper. It just didn't happen. Unbelievable. And I, to this day, I don't know if my dad knew about it. So wow. And then how long after stuff. that did she marry your dad? It seems like it was a couple years, maybe, maybe. Uh, and and she was really seriously verbally abusive to me um and i don't know what that was <laughs> i don't know what whether it was resentment out of not doing her career or whatever was going on from her dad you know running away from home i i don't know but it was pretty intense uh for much of my childhood and then did you you i know you have at least a sister do you have other siblings no just younger sister and so what was her experience like growing up compared to yours she has no understanding of any of this and can't understand why I'm upset. But she's six years younger. It's a, a very big distance between. And by the time I was about 10 or 12, it, it sort of stopped. Mm-hmm. Mostly because I was just out at that point. I was, I was, I was away. <laughs> I was not around. You know, I, I think I avoided being alone with her. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, so then well. I've heard you share about your own struggles with codependency. Yeah. Um, when did that become an issue for you or when did you you know realize that that was an issue? Um, I, I realized it from working in a psychiatric hospital uh, I started moonlighting in this in the psych hospital where I ended up running the treatment center for many decades in 1985 and immediately women or per- patients with borderline personality disorder started wiping the floor with me just just <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> I mean, because I wanted to be the perfect doctor and the perfect this, the perfect that. And so, you know, when they would say things like only you can get only you're the perfect. Oh, no one's ever been helpful except you. I was like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And then pretty soon, (laughs) three in the morning, you need to come see me now. And the demands got huger and crazier and wilder. And I kept trying to meet them. That was the craziness until literally I physically couldn't do it anymore. And I thought that this is something I, I had to you know, I'd ask the staff, literally the nursing staff had to educate me and help me understand what was going on. And uh, so that was my foray. And then later on, <clears throat> dealing with the drug addicts, I, I, I would idealize some of the traumatized patients. And, and I knew something was, there was some boundary problem there where I was not as effective as I could be. Fortunately, I was only, I was really doing a lot of intensive work then. I was really just dealing with the biological stuff. Later, you know, certainly after I was treated and became more expert in, in the condition, that's when I had more deep contact with the patients. And so, you know, it really never had any clinical effect. Um, I just wasn't as effective as I could have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always just found it so um, interesting with you being mm-hmm. that you're not in recovery yourself, but you just seem like a doctor that like you really, really understand and get addiction. I really do. I really do. And every addict. What do you think every- that's about? Every addict I know tells me that they go, how do you not have this thing? And I think it's, it's my codependency plus the fact that I've lived, you know, full time with the disease running a treatment program. You know, when you see thousands of people with this thing, 
and you have recovering people around you helping, you know, remind you of how this thing's working because it's hard as a normie. I, I constantly had to have my, my sober peers going, uh, like I, I to, all the way through my career running a program, I would, I would get in a little too deep sometimes with the patients early and I'd go, God, I had this great, you know, session with this patient, she had all these insights and she's willing to motivate. And, you know, Bob Forrest, you know, my guy with the hat and the glasses from Southern Rehab, I'd come out and I'd tell him, he'd just go, yeah, yeah, she wants to get high. She, she you, you got a prescription pad, right? I go, yeah, yeah, she wants to get high. <laughs> she, she's look, she sees that RX over your head. She's doing whatever she got to do. So trust me, this, it's all bullshit. Good luck. Enjoy. And I'd go, God damn it. Here Again, I fell for it. And he was always right. Always, always, always right. And what is it that, cause you know, I've, I've heard some about how you got into this, but what was it particular that really drew you to this, that you wanted to kind of have this be your expertise, your specialty? Well, it, it was, I, I was running medical services in the psychiatric hospital. So I became an expert in the medical care of psychiatric patients. And, and you'd be amazed how, how much med- medical issues figure into psychiatric pathology, either psych conditions cause psychopathology I mean, excuse me, cause biological problems or the medication cause medical problems, or there's an underlying medical problem actually producing the psychiatric syndrome. That's very like 20% of the time I found that probably 30, 40% of the time there was some medical element that needed, needed um, dealing with. And of course, the place where that was always the case was down in the drug unit. Everyone was sick, everyone was detoxed, and I got to be an expert in drug withdrawal. And I sort of got good at that. And like, I, I like the culture of the drug unit. I like the patients themselves. I just, I, it's hard not to like addicts. And, I, and, and, um, and then when I saw people recover, I still thought that, you know, I, I had this naive thing where I'd sit in the nursing station and I, you know, do all my medical stuff. And I'd look through the window at the treatment room. And of course the 12 steps are on the wall. And I go, what is that silly stuff in there? I'm doing the real, tr- I'm getting them off drug. What is that nonsense in there? And then I saw a recovery. Then I saw some people recover. And I was like, wow, what is, what is happening here? I, I can't even, I don't understand. I want to understand what this is. It's amazing. I saw people go from dying to amazing. And uh, I need to get, get, get it on here. I need to figure this out. And uh, especially in medicine, where you're usually going from acutely ill to chronically ill, you know, and so this was nothing I'd ever, certainly never been trained on, never seen before and was fascinated by it. Wow. So what do you, and, and, and by the way, before, before, before you answer that, well, yeah. I'm going to have you ask that question again, because that's an interesting question, but, but it's also why I ran an abstinence only program because I, I wasn't interested in just survival. I was interested in people who wanted to flourish and be better than they ever knew they could be. Now that the people argue about how risky that is or is not, and who that should be, who we should reserve that for or not. Well, that's the doctor's responsibility to make sure we're not doing the wrong treatment for the wrong patient, the right treatment for the right patient. And for people that are capable and for whom there's both people who are capable of full recovery and then people who really need full recovery or they're going to die because of all the half measures. And there are people that have no hope and need replacement and other things. And and that's fine. I just wasn't interested in that. So my program was abstinence, pure and simple. No benzos were allowed. I couldn't use Suboxone because just having an opiate on the unit made the patients go crazy because they all wanted it then. And so I just didn't feel I could run a program properly. So we just made it. And I never had any trouble getting anybody off opiates. It wasn't though... I was sitting there going, God, what are we going to do with the opiate? I was like, how can I possibly get, I'm, no problem. I know exactly how to do it. I had them all off in five days. No problem. It wasn't, it wasn't perfectly comfortable, but it was not a big deal. And um, so we just didn't need it. Anyway, what do I think the magic well, is? 
Well, for, no, before I ask that, I want to say something else. So I, I had this guy on my show a couple of weeks ago. I, I think he said that maybe he's met you. So his name is Tom Wolf, and he is kind of like an activist here in San Francisco that is speaking out about, um, you know, the, the drug and homeless, homeless crisis thing. that's going on here. So he the lived on the streets. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know Tom. He li- yeah. yeah. He's amazing. But what he told me and this real, I mean, when I start talking about that, I'm sure you're the same way. Like I just get so fucking pissed off when I hear about like what's actually going on. But I don't know if this is just San Francisco or if this was California at large, but he said, at least in San Francisco, that they only fund um, harm reduction based treatments and that they stopped funding any abstinence based programs. Correct. In fact, they're trying to make it illegal, (laughs) trying to make it illegal to treat people abstinence based. Yeah, it's crazy. Not for the whole state or just the city of San Francisco? Uh, this is a California thing, but San Francisco is the sort of leader in the whole thing. It's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, look, Tom used Suboxone though, right? And it really, really helped him, if I remember right. I think that's true. And so, so there was a perfect utilization of it, right? Who really helped somebody and then they were able to get him. So it's, it's not an all or nothing thing, right? It's just, again, skill of the, of the clinician using the right things for the right patient for the best outcome. And it's a highly challenging question. I feel so grateful that I never got into opiates or, or meth. Oh yeah. Meth. And by the way, as I'm thinking more and I see more and more of the data, meth is our big problem. That's what's really causing the craziness and the homelessness and everything else. I mean, of course, fentanyl opiates for sure. That drives you to the streets too. But the magnitude of what's going on is, is meth is the rocket fuel right now. Why do you say that? Just statistically, is it's a great book coming out by a guy, a guy named Sam Quinonius, who really chronicles how the meth spread and how you can you can d- directly associate spread of distribution of meth with incidents of homelessness. It just go, it's a direct correlation. And you go on the street, talk to them; they'll tell you the the average homeless person is opiate meth or just meth alone. But not that there aren't plenty of opiate addicts. There are plenty, plenty, plenty. Ugh, I just watched that. Um... Did you see that documentary with about Tom Arnold's sister, Queen of I Meth? Did not, but I've ta- <laughs> I know Tom very well, and so I know the story. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. I reached out to him to see if he he'd come on. He probably um, did. He probably talk did. about a dysfunctional family. Oh man, <laughs> they they were awesome. They, they really had it had it uh, had it going on. What are your thoughts on Narcan? I I don't understand any resistance to it. I, it's confusing to me. Uh, that, I mean, there are, there are long-term uses of Narcan that can be useful. There's short-term uses of Narcan that can be useful. There's multiple kinds of uses of the drug. I don't understand any resistance to it, except I think Tom probably pointed this out that once you reverse the Narcan, you're going to withdrawal, right? You're going to withdraw for a little while. And so sometimes they're using more afterwards. So again, it's incumbent upon us to give the Narcan and then render more care. Mm-hmm. Not that the Narcan is bad, is we're not creating the proper environment for the administration of the Narcan and the laws are preventing us from doing that. You're prevented from doing anything with someone who goes, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm speaking to uh, Napoleon right now. You got to leave me alone. You have to leave them alone. Mm. Yeah, it's very disgusting. But what what about you said, what is the magic? Okay, so what do you think the magic is behind the 12 steps? Why do you Mm. think that this has worked more so than anything else, at least in my opinion? Well, it's empiric, right? It's something that grew out empirically and and empiric. Or divinely. Mm -hmm. Then what? Divinely. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, as you, however you wish, I'm I'm a biologist. So the the spiritual piece, although I know it's deeply important, I kind of, 
put on a over here, you know, for the community. Um, but it it did certainly rise out of of the people struggling with this thing and people trying to help them with this thing. And all the ideas were put together, and we got this. Really, um, when you when you look at what twelve step is, it just an amalgamation of everything else we do in mental health intervention. It's CBT, it's DBT, it's deep emotionally focused therapy. It's it's just done between lay people, so it can only go so far. But uh, John Kelly has a lecture where he talks, he shows, you know, the fact that that everything that we do professionally is are essentially components of what the twelve steps are. And that people tend to sort of pick the things they need the most from the 12 step. You know what I mean? Uh, some people need more CBT. Some people need more, you know, structure and supervision. Some people need more emotional regulation. And so, you know, fourth and fifth steps are more important. Some people need a deeper spiritual connection and they're too busy controlling and obsessing and they need to get out of their head and first and second steps, obviously, and the revisitation of that later, deeply important. So, and, you know, I, I think done properly, they're all important, of course. Um, but the magic to me is that whatever that is when you let go, the surrender, and the, then how you create the circumstances where humans can surrender, how is surrender possible, especially for drug addicts? And then the other magic is what happens between two people, the sponsor and the sponsee, when, when, profoundly deep material is presented and the other person listens and attunes and says, me too. I've been there. I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you say, obviously there's limitations that it is between lay people, but then there's also this additional layer of like the connection that is formed because yeah. they suffer from the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's deep. It's profound. It, it, it's the, the me too is, is profoundly, you know, this, you know, I understand because I've been there is a profoundly important uh, piece of this. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes, you know, one of the things about addicts, alcoholics is they were traumatized in childhood, as we've talked about. And, um, and trust becomes a major, major issue. If you have that history, it's hard to trust well, yeah. somebody in there. And I think that's why this, a big reason that I wanted to create this podcast. And especially as you, as you and I discussed about how, um, how few therapists are really qualified to kind of look at the adult child stuff. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it's so important for people to hear it from someone who can relate. So, mm -hmm. you know, my story, as far as like hitting my, this, having this second great surrender, hitting this emotional bottom in sobriety at nine years, what has your experience been? I mean, you've obviously been working in this field for so long. Is, is this something that you've seen quite often? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I distinguish in my own mind, I don't really, you know, make a big deal at this, you know, sort of to the patient, but I distinguish between I have sort of different categories. One is how do we make recovery possible, <laughs> which is the first challenge, mm -hmm. Re recovery, and then full recovery. And a lot of people don't ever go to full recovery and, and that's okay. You know, they just are better and they're the magic of recovery sustains them. And that's a great, but usually there's other stuff that needs some really kind of professional management or other kinds of treatments whether it's EMDR or codependency, every addict needs codependency work. Let's, as you know, well, and if, and if you don't look at that stuff, you're it will bring you back into the disease one way or another, but, but oftentimes, you know, addicts will, you know, their sponsor will say, you know, let's check out some Al-Anon meetings and they do, they're very good about it. You know, third, three to five years in, I find people tend to tend to start going there. Um, but uh, it, it, 
in terms of your situation, the fact that it became such a major component of your recovery, that was sort of unusual. And the, and the sort of lightning strike with which it got to you. It fucking right. sucked. <laughs> right. It was miserable. Right. Like right. seriously, it was way more painful than hitting my bottom and just. Right. And, and for some people, for, for, for most real codependents, you and me, the, the material is actually more delicate, more painful than, than addicts and, and their stuff and what happens to them. Mm-hmm. Just more yeah. delicate, deeper, it's, you know, it's tougher. And harder to treat, right? Cause it's like, it's with harder to, yeah, it's, it's a little more, it's deeper. It's, it's, it's ineffable. You know, it's harder. You're going at systems and, and regulations and parts of the brain you're trying to enlist that your brain literally can't because you, you miss that part because of, because of whatever happened or it was walled off because of whatever happened. And it, it takes a lot to, to, to get things back going again, to inter- reintegrate. That's literally the, the job of recovery from codependency many times. And it's also like, when you think about it from like, it's, it's so much easier to abstain from drugs and alcohol. Right. But then when it comes to the relationship stuff, it's just not as clear cut. I, I, I don't, I don't want to say that as, clearly as that because everyone's so different you know and as you said you didn't really get into the opiates and imagine what that would be like you know that that might be your that might be your life-saving life mm-hmm. you know life and death struggle period that's it you can't ever get to the other stuff and that's fine <laughs> you know what i mean that's okay um but when you do get to it and if it is a major issue uh, and not everyone has as big a dose as you got right you know that was a pretty good sized dose of of the the circumstances that set up codependency uh and, you know, and, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's a little different than their recovery. Mm-hmm. So how big of an issue do you think this is? Just the generational nature of family dysfunction? Do you feel like it's being spoken about enough? No, you- it's not enough. It's everything. Um, it's and it's alive and well, causing all the problems we see now. Uh, I wanted to write about it in my, I wanted to at least write about, you know, generational childhood trauma and other societies that have had a lot of it in my narcissism book, the publisher wouldn't let me do it, but I kept looking at revolutionary France and going, that is like right now. And lo and behold, the guillotines are out now and everyone's going up on the guillotine. That's the cancel culture. That's the guillotine. And eventually the people that put people on the guillotine end up on the guillotine. That's the way this shit works. And so now we're in it. Now we're in the consequences of, of all this trauma without and all the projection and everyone seeing aggression and Nazis and things out there when in fact it's something to do with what's going on in them. And the fact that we're not addressing it that way is very, very, very concerning to me. So you see that as just the repercussions of of faulty programming? Of of childhood trauma causing uh, emotional dysregulation, a lot of shame and unregulated aggression particularly. And when you have these personality dysfunctions, right? And we all have them, um, the trauma is walled off. And so the individual experiences this as, well, that was something I experienced. I either, I needed it because it made me who I am. Like I needed that discipline in quotes or uh, yeah, it was terrible, but I I don't think about it anymore. And people don't understand that as uh, I guess the best vessel Vandercoke wrote the book, the body keeps the score it's still in your regulatory system of your body brain system and as such needs attention or will manifest in certain ways. And it either manifests by, you know, certain behaviors that um, you, you can't understand, like being attracted to the same kind of people over and over again, something like that, or 
projection is what we see now. I'm, I'm, so you, when you have a personality dysfunction, you put the locus of your problems out there. So you see all the problems out there. You see aggression in other people when it's actually your aggression. It's actually you that has the problem, but you're projecting it into others. And that is on full display these days. Yeah. It's like you always hear in the rooms and 12 step meetings, how you need to listen for the similar, find the similarities and not the differences. Correct. And I feel like we just live in a culture today where it's just all about finding the differences. <sighs> so what about as far as like emotional neglect goes, emotional abuse, what would you say are some examples of that to where somebody listen might not have considered that to be neglectful or abusive that could that does actually have quite an impact on someone. Well, that's typically, I mean, that's everybody. I hope it's, you know, that that's how we that's how we progress with trauma, right? We minimize it. We wall it off. We push it in the back. We consider it something we don't think about or worry about. We deny whatever it is. It's all back there. You know, it's not something that we have any in the moment relationship with at all, typically. Um, except, you know, sometimes when it's overt, people will have anger towards the perpetrators or whatever, um, but really not fully appreciate the impact of the trauma. And usually it's minimized or, 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 or denied. Uh, you know, well, I was a lot, I was a latchkey kid. My mom you know, would, say, would never around at night, but I took care of myself. I did great. I watched TV. It was great. It was great. No, it was not great. K kids need <clears throat> nourishment. They need nourishment and they have to have it. It's painful when they don't get it. They feel like it's their problem when they don't get it and they adjust accordingly. Now that adjustment is not good. That's what you're living in now is the adjustment. If you were physically abused, particularly if you were hit with an object, it damages your regulatory system in your brain mediated through the socio-emotional system of the vagus nerve. We know a lot of the biology now and it's permanent and it can be treated, but it typically doesn't get better on its own. So if you've been struck with an object, I mean, you know, the average interaction I have with my patients were always me having to, you know, extract the history. I mean, no one ever, rarely would they sit down and go, I had this, this, this happened. What they would say is, I would say, you know, I'd always go through an inventory of abuse. I'd say, were you, were you hit as a child? Like everyone. Um, well, I was disciplined. Of course I was disciplined. I needed that discipline. My mom knew what I needed. Just like, okay. Um, but I was never beaten. I never beaten or anything like that. Okay. Um, and then you sort of let them talk and they go, yeah, I used to have to go out into the backyard and get the switch that she would hit me with. Oh, so she hit you with an object. Yeah. Yeah. Switch. I mean, that's what we did. That's what I, maybe that was a little much, but that's what they did in those days. And it really worked, man. I got my, my I really got my act together because I was an unruly kid. I was terrible. Um, really switch, huh? Anything else? Like, no, no, nothing else. Oh yeah. The, one time an ax and a baseball bat. Yeah. Those two times. Yeah. The ax, that was interesting. You threw an ax at me. I'm like, uh, okay. And th this would happen every day, every day with every patient. Uh, and so that's the way we deal with trauma. We, we, we put it away somewhere and it's not good. You, you know, right. You had this experience. I know, but I mean, I was not like, I don't know. It's a little bit different when you're like getting hit with like yeah. an ax. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's the same process though, of sort of, you know, not seeing it. Yeah, no. And, and, and I believe that there's a lot more to something called anisognosia than, than we sort of, lay claim or, or, or help people understand there, there is a, what does that mean? 
anosognosia is the word. It's it was first coined by Dr. Babinski at 1900 to coin the lack of awareness of left side of the body and left sidedness when people have right middle cerebral artery strokes. In other words, their body's hemiplegic on one side. You can show them their hand and they'll go, huh, whose hand is that? And it drops away and like, whatever. Or if they have them do a clock, they'll put, they'll put the numbers of the clock, they'll cram it into the right side of the clock because left sidedness doesn't exist and they have no awareness of that, right? And anosognosia affects mental illness. It's why people who are psychotic have no awareness that they're psychotic. It's why people who are severely throwing out on meth and end up on the street think they're living their best life and really don't want any help. But it's all a biological event. And yes, there's certain psychological features. We call that denial, but it's underpinned by this biology of anosognosia. And my nurse and I used to sort of amuse ourselves with, with how anosognosia worked with denial just by asking people that were admitted to the hospital, what, what brought you in? You know, cause I always want to know what their motivation is and how far along are we? Are they, have they lost their kids? Have they lost their freedom? Have they lost, nearly lost their life? You know, what, what why are you here right now? What, what made this moment, the moment you, cause that's what you can sort of use for helping motivation, but it was uncanny how many patients would go, well, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just, uh, so you can't imagine like to live like that was the average response. And then I'd, oh, I'd pull up on the chart and uh, I'd go, uh, you're sick and tired, right? It's too much. Nothing else influenced you to come here? No. Oh, my God. That you can't <laughs> imagine. Nothing else. How about this court document where you were sent in chains from court to this facility? Did this have anything to do with how you came here? Well, yeah, there was that. But that's really not. It's not uh, you know, again, they, they just literally it, that wasn't lying and denial. That was just crazy. And a block. It, it's so such a block. I, I, one of my favorite st denial stories is, uh, and this is how di denial and anesthesia go together. A guy I worked with, a, a counselor for a couple of years, he um, he got sober long before he became a counselor, of course. And he said that he 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 um, he used to come home raging drunk at night and yell at his wife. And one, and then he'd come down in the morning. His wife would confront him, and he'd blow it off because what is she talking about? That didn't happen. Again, anosognosia, and anosognosia is buttressed by you know blacking out and the pharmacological effects of whatever you're using, and then the biology too. So one day he came down, and there was a tape recorder there, and and she she said, "I want you to hear this. This is what you sound <laughs> like." And she played the tape, and he said he heard this screaming and yelling and carrying on his craziness. And his reaction was to become furious with his wife. How dare she hire an actor to sound like him to make him believe that he behaved like that? And, and to me, this is the really the capper of the story. He didn't have insight into that until he'd been sober like three years. In other words, that, that <laughs> denial you know, just stayed in place. I think he said two years. It might have been two years, but it was well into his sobriety before he went, oh, ugh, oh yeah, that. Yeah. Sounds hmm. like my family. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty interesting, uh, right? Oh, it's crazy. We're crazy. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so but it's uh, also one, but it's also wonderful and fascinating. It's how the human brain works. Love it. You know, no, that's know. the thing about addiction. You see it all on display. And, um, and then of course, you know, like I said, I liked addicts, they're smart and they're rich and they're interesting. And they're just a, this disease afflicts the best and brightest amongst us. You hear that everyone? Yeah, it does. It's, I'm and, 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 and in <laughs> fact, and in fact, I not only think that that's true, 
But I think that, you know, you have to, I don't think I explained this to you before, but you have to ask yourself, why does this gene persist or this grouping of genes or this genetic predilection? If it's so dangerous and so destructive, why does it persist so perfectly through the human genome? And that means it has to have some adaptive advantage, right? And when you think about it, the disease, the disease part only manifests in certain circumstances socially and in certain so circumstances in terms of access. And, you know, if you're on a desert island, right, you can't manifest the disease. You might have some of the features, but you can't manifest full disease. And I started thinking about it. And it was actually when I watched the movie Braveheart, where they portrayed this rather accurately. It's abundantly clear that people with this genetic predilection are at at a evolutionary advantage mm. in circumstances of extreme duress. So military battles, genocidal assaults, it's the addict alcoholic genetics, not that they're using, it's their genetics that they survive at a distinct advantage. So I used to mess with this, you know, with the, my patients when I would or experiment with it not even the right word, show it to people um, because of all those messing with experimentation. With rats ethical. in the labs. Right. It sounds ethically <laughs> off. Um, but I would take, I would go to, you know, I give lectures lots of times at alcohol. I say, you know, what would happen if a bomb went off in the parking lot? And they would all say, I'd go check it out. I'd go see what's going on. That is not a normal impulse. That is not, uh, I would not do that. Or they, or I said, what if a bunch of Huns came over the hill, you know, charging at us? They all, they all said, about 80, 90% of them would say, not everyone would say this one, but 89% would go, I grab, grab something. I go at, go towards it. I go at them. I, I defend myself again. I, I, and evidently when this would happen, you know, through generations or through multiple military assaults, I would get a spear in the back. And the addict alcoholic would have a slight advantage and be more likely to survive. And when you look at people with this biology, they make great shortstops, they make great extreme athletes, they make great fighter pilots. Because, I mean, if you all, any of you with this, think about it, in these times of extreme duress, your anxiety goes away, mm. things slow down. Normal. It, it's, it feels good. If you get a little high from it, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's fascinating to me. I think I told you about one time I was sitting in an AA meeting and all of a sudden there's all these cop cars that are coming outside and there's something going, I am the only one in the meeting, but I, I had to leave the meeting so I could go stand outside and see what the hell was going on. <laughs> the whole group didn't go do it. I know. I guess I was clearly really was sick. Bad. And then I also had the police scanner like thing on my phone too. And I had to get rid of that because I was just listening to it all day. And then, you know, they use codes. So then I had to have like the chart up on like what a 534B meant and yeah, yeah. all that crap. From doing celebrity rehab and all that stuff, what would be one of the most profound uh, transformations that you saw with one of your patients? Well, I, there was many, frankly. Um, Mary Carey is doing, uh -huh. doing very well right now. Very well. She, she needed a bunch more treatment, but, but she's, you know, that started her down the path. And she, she, I talked to her the other day and she was saying, I remembered all the things you kept telling me. I wasn't ready yet, but I heard them. And I, and the next treatment, I applied them and, oh yeah, he was right. And um, Jenny Ketchum, who was in the sex rehab show, mm -hmm. um, she was a, a porn actress who ended up also having a little cocaine, alcohol, cannabis problem. Lo and behold, um, and got sober and got serious. And now is a medical social worker married with a child and just, just a, these, this is the stuff that keeps me in this game. I mean, it's just amazing to watch these people grow and flourish. 
Um, there were others. There are many, many others, uh, but those two just come to mind right now. And and that's that's a miracle. So to me, that's the miracle. Um, so what about like you've also lost so many of your patients as well? Um, sure. I'm assuming that you never get used to something like that. I'm sure it impacts you. Each oh time. yeah, no? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's really why I stopped you know, one of the motivators for getting me to stop running a program, which was at the end there, we were only, not only, predominantly, and I mean predominantly, taking people off opiates that were strung out on opiates by doctors. I mean, that was just opiate benzo by my peers. That was bad enough. And that was a struggle because there was often pain issues and this and that, and the other thing, but they were just full on addicts that would drastically mistreated by, by pain management for years, many times. I could get them off everything, no problem. We could get them in the game. What, what broke my spirit was then three months later, they're addicts. They'd go mad surreptitiously go see those old doctors. I, I'm not going there to get drugs. I just have to have a follow up on my back. I mean, he told me to follow up. I'm just following up my back. And that doctor would say something along the lines of, when are you going to stop listening to those people? You're going to need these medications the rest of your life. T do what I tell you and take these things. Mm -hmm. And they'd be dead typically within two to four weeks. And that happened more times than I can count. And it got happened to Mike Starr, happened to Jeff Conway in terms of celebrity rehab. It's exactly what happened to them. And it was uh, too much, too much. And there was no turnaround in the opiate crisis at that point. You got to understand this, that thing only turned around like three, four years ago. Uh, it was, it was going full throttle until three years ago. Man, what do you, where do you see things going with the whole fentanyl crisis? I mean, I feel like it's just the beginning it's, in certain as, ways. As you said earlier, it's going towards harm avoidance and then people who really don't understand addiction trying to manage it. And it's deeply concerning. Mm -hmm. And people with fentanyl meth are being used by politicians to make political points rather than being helped. It's disgusting. disgusting. Um, well, I know I only have you for a few more minutes, but I did want to ask you, I had listened to your episode with, um, with Rick Doblin um, from a couple weeks ago or months ago. And um, I'm just curious on what are your thoughts and I, you know, perspectives on the use of psychedelics in treating PTSD. Again. So that was a Rick Doblin is the, is the founder of maps, the yeah. multidisciplinary uh, association for psychedelic studies. And he's a, he's a good psychologist and excellent researcher. And he had some very good data on the use of MDMA for complex PTSD, primarily situational traumas like military situations um, in recalcitrant cases when there's nothing else to be done, right? Yeah. And the data look good. So that's perfect. I, I have no problem with that. The, the, always the question is what's the risk reward? And a lot of people are using ayahuasca and ibogaine and all these things now willy nilly. I mean, we have no idea what they're doing or what the consequences are going to be. Um, I may be going down to a facility in, in uh, Costa Rica to examine what they're doing. They seem like a good group. Uh, I, I don't, I, I, to me, I've seen personality changes. Everyone goes back anyway when they try that stuff. I, so I, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, I, I do think that mushrooms and LSD will have utility and end of life dread. Uh, there's clear data there. UCLA has some good data that suggests that's going to be useful. And again, let's say it does hurt the brain a little bit doing that. So what? It's you know, it's a very end intervention, right? Um, it's just you know intervening on addicts who could otherwise potentially flourish and be the amazing people I know recovering people can be. 
getting in the way of that with you know hallucinogenic related what mood disorder personality i i don't know what scares the hell out of me so i i reserve any I, I so bottom line is don't know who to use it for or where to use it as always we, you know doctors should have as many sort of interventions as they could possibly get their hands on to help people the challenge always is the right thing for the right patient and until that is precisely defined so the risk reward of a given individual can be precisely defined we shouldn't be doing it we shouldn't be doing it, it scares me so what do you have going on? What are you working on now? Other than all of your, a million bajillion podcasts that you have. Yeah. Just trying to keep one foot in front of the other and figure out what I want to do. I'm just trying to grow up here, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I, I feel like this, I've been traumatized through COVID. I, I it just uh, traumatized all of us and we need to take a good look at it. And I, I just think we have to look at ourselves somehow in a way that improves our, our emotional health and regulation and how we treat each other. It's, it's just, everything is such a disgusting cesspool right now that I, I, I feel like it's turning a little bit, at least, at least allowed to talk rather than being always silenced in all cases. <laughs> if, unless you're saying a certain thing in the eyes of a certain party, whoever that happens to be, um, that seems to be lightening up a little bit. Um, I don't know. It, it's, uh, I, I want to do more stuff. I don't feel like I'm done yet. I want to keep making a difference if I possibly can. And if stuff comes along, I'll look into it. That's sort of how I've always done it. I've always just sort of walked into things and gone, huh, okay, what's a TV? How do you do a TV show? I have no idea. What does that mean? I, can we make something good out of it that has a good impact? I, uh, let's see. Let's see. Now I've done it enough that I kind of know where that zone is. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to try and keep trying. Well, that's amazing. Well, I want to start and I'm throwing it out in the universe. I want to start my own recovery podcast network. There isn't one that's like good. Well, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of, do you know, uh, the Dobie podcast? Yep, yep. Okay. So, so there's good stuff lying here and there. It's good community around here and there, but there's not a, a network where we can all network. be yeah. together. I yeah. think that that's I, a huge opportunity there. I think it's a good idea. There's, there's a lot of fragmented stuff all over the place and exactly. yes, it together would be a, a you know have it sort of that's a really good idea have sort of you know good housekeeping seal of approval this this is a podcast that is part of this yeah the know, leading network. recovery podcast yeah. network but i yeah, only yeah, want yeah. like dave's perfect right because he's like I mean, super yeah like filterless and vulnerable like me like i don't i want i want real people real shows but you know no, what you should do you should what? start with a little blog that that evaluates pods and then say this one has the seal or this one they give them ratings or something and then and then maybe as that catches on start to offer people the opportunity to come together to do something yeah well i've reached out to a couple of people um i'm gonna do it you hear me i'm I'm gonna do it i I see you i I know when you say something like that it's real (laughs) I need to, I need to get out of my, my day job. As I told you, that's mm-hmm. killing me. So, well, this well, has been this such an honor. Pleasure is mine as always. Yes. Let's do it. Shaking your fist at me. You're shaking your fist. I mean, what's going I'm on? Pumped. No, I'm pumped. I really, I'm so, so you don't understand. Like I'm so fucking grateful for you, for the opportunity. Like seriously, it was a huge moment for me. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, I won't bug you too much, but I, I, you know, any, any help, uh, referrals, anything you can send my way, please help a girl out. I well, and, and let's all keep <laughs> rowing in the same direction and sit in the, you know, get in the same ship and start rowing. And, yeah. and, um, I appreciate what you're doing and was happy to delighted to get to know you and to, and to do, do these pods with you. Yeah.
Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that you can relate to. I know you did. If you didn't, you got some issues. Thank you again to Dr. Drew. Such an honor. Seriously. I did just want to share a message I received a couple days ago that really, really made my day. Hi, Andrea. I hope you're doing well. I heard you on the Dr. Drew podcast about a week ago, and that was the first time I'd ever heard the term adult children of alcoholics. Honestly, it was exciting to hear that there's a name for what I've been feeling my entire life. I have since been binge listening to your podcast, and it's given me hope when I really need it. I'm a 45-year-old man and have always felt lost and broken. I've always joked that my family is highly dysfunctional, but I had no idea that I had experienced trauma. I just thought I was fucked up. I'm still struggling with alcohol, but I feel a sense of relief that maybe if I can figure out why I drink, then I can be free of this bullshit. I have tears rolling down my face as I write this, and I know I have a long road ahead. I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing. You've already helped me more than you will ever know. Larry. Larry, I love you. (laughs) Seriously. I had tears when I read this message. You do have a long road ahead of you, but you will start to see changes happen quicker than you think, and you can do it. You are still 45 years young. Um, Thank you so much for your message and please stay in touch. And thank you all for listening today. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. I'm also on Facebook. Just search for the Adult Child Pod group. And yeah, I will see you guys next week for a great interview. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. I promise.